0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com.
1: Thank you for listening. Okay, good morning, America. This is Pete Mecca, your host for A Veteran Story on AmericasWebRadio.com. We're running a little bit late this morning. We had a technical glitch. Uh, so, so much for the tech uh, uh, society this year. uh Okay, I, it's going to be difficult for me to even introduce my guest today. What a guy this is. Uh, Bob Dare entered the Army in 1968 right out of high school, served a combat tour in Vietnam, was in heavy combat, and 30 years later, he retired as Command Sergeant Major at the U.S. Army Forces Command, the Army's largest organization, as a senior enlisted advisor to a four-star general. He served in six of the Army's 10 divisions, he deployed to 28 countries, and even served as first sergeant of the 3rd Army Old Guard at Arlington National Cemetery. Sergeant, Command Sergeant Major Bob Dare, welcome to the show, sir.
0: Well, thanks so much, Pete, and thanks for that kind and uh, generous introduction. I really, really look forward to being with you today.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, you certainly heard that, that uh, uh, introduction and much more. Uh, You've had an outstanding career, but first tell us a little bit. Where were you born and raised your childhood, and why in the world did you join the United States Army?
0: Sure. So I was born and raised in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, pretty big family. There were nine of us siblings, um, four sisters and five of us boys.
1: Wow. And,
0: uh I, I mean, we had a great childhood. We had uh, great parents, um, but I kind of uh, I kind of grew of age, if you will, uh, into adulthood in the in the '60s in Ann Arbor. And anybody that knows the history of this country knows that during those times there was a lot of unrest and a lot of distractions. And I got caught up in the distractions. And we'll just say that the justice system of the United States. Encouraged me to talk to a recruiter, which led <laughs> me to uh, enlist, and six days after high school, I was on a bus uh, out of Detroit heading down to Fort Knox, Kentucky, to basic training.
1: Uh, okay, uh, we, we won't get into that justice part. Uh, been there, done that. Uh, why did you choose the Army, by the way?
0: Well, to be perfectly honest, at the time I got in trouble, I was having a lot of conflict with my dad, who was a, a World War II vet. In fact, he was a founding member of the 508th Parachute Infantry Regiment, um, ultimately part of the 82nd Airborne Division, and and we were butting heads a lot, and so when I ran into this little uh, legal difficulty, and I realized I had one of two choices, and I took the, the better choice, I there was no question, but I go to the army because I was going to prove to my dad I could do I could do what he did.
1: Huh. Okay, very good. Uh, go ahead and tell us about your basic training and some advanced training and uh, your deployment to Vietnam, uh, your unit locations and dates or things like that.
0: Sure. So, basic training was basic training. Anybody that's experienced it knows that it's a it's an immediate culture shock. Um, <laughs> drill sergeants have a means by which to grab your attention and hold on to it, and and if your attention span should be short, they will they will uh, help you lengthen it very very quickly. And I think <laughs> one thing that impressed me um, almost all of our drill sergeants that we had were were battle hardened. Uh, we had a few World War II, Korea, and Vietnam vets. Wow! Uh, all of them had had served in korea and vietnam so um the the experience was there and so when when you knew eventually you would probably end up going to battle um it wasn't hard to listen to these folks as they tried to train you and and their heart and soul was into training you and so that that uh that caught my attention and then after basic training um I went a little bit further south to Fort Benning to Infantry AIT and trained as a light infantryman and um, completed that. You were,
1: were jumping out of airplanes, right?
0: Well, not yet, but I mean, uh, I did. After, after Infantry AIT, I, I oh, okay. packed, packed my stuff and moved across the post to the Airborne School and 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 uh, learned how to jump out of airplanes. And and again, I, I made that choice because I was going to prove to my father if he could do that type of stuff, I could do that type of stuff. and. I must say it was pretty exhilarating and pretty exciting, and and uh, it put you into a group of people that were just—I'm not going to say we're better than anybody else, but just from a, from a confident point of view and from uh, um, sharing something special in terms of a hard experience, um, um, it really it really helped to grow me a little bit.
1: Yeah, you know, I can understand that. Now, I was in the Air Force. We jump out of airplanes too, but we have to be on fire. <laughs> <laughs> All right, when did you get your orders for uh, Vietnam? Did you go straight to Vietnam after training?
0: The the day that we graduated from airborne school, the vast majority of us got our wings and got orders to Vietnam concurrently. So uh, after airborne school, went home on a little leave and then off to Vietnam.
1: Okay. Uh, where were you in Vietnam? What unit and uh, location?
0: So... I ended up in I Corps. I ended up in the 52nd Infantry, which was part of the 198th Light Infantry Brigade, which was part of the 23rd uh, Infantry Division, the Americal Division, and um, the headquarters was in Chu Lai. And uh, I ended up at uh, Landing Zone Bayonet with uh,
1: okay.
0: with the 1st and 52nd Infantry. All yeah, right, very
1: good. What was your first impression of Vietnam?
0: Um, the heat was overwhelming. The um, the uh, the fear of what was in front was uh, kept you awake. Um, and I would just tell you, it 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 a little little levity. Of this everybody had to go through the combat training center in July before they shipped you out to your to your final unit. And it was a, a week long of being acclimated to the weather and classes on what to expect and so forth and so on. And the culminating event was the booby trap course. And um, so, so each person would negotiate down a little lane. This this course that was enclosed. And when it was my turn, I started into it and I, I took one step and bang! And I jumped to my right and. and I jumped forward and bang and then I just sat down and I I physically started crying I I just I'm going to get killed there's no way I can't make it and behind me was a sergeant who was back for his second tour and had already been through it and he grabbed me and picked me up and grow up and be a man and stop this slobbering and he dragged me out of it. He goes, listen, this is exaggerated. Um, this is not the way it really is, but the whole intent here is to make you aware that you have got to be aware of what's around you. You've got to watch where you walk. You've got to watch before you put your foot down. You have to know what piece of ground you're putting it down on. And is there anything there that shouldn't be there. So he kind of restored uh, my thought that, well, maybe I will make it after all. Wow. And then All right.
1: After- Bob, we, uh, we, Bob, I'm sorry. We have to go to our first break. Okay. We'll be right, right back. Uh, then we'll talk about your tour in Vietnam. Folks, we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Stay with us.
0: Hi. This is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from lawyers to citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please go to our website, warriors and find out how you can help either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you.
1: Alright, folks, we're back with Command Sergeant Major Bob Dare. Alright, Bob, you're a young man. You just got to Vietnam. You went through your training there at Chu Life. Um, tell us about your first mission and describe what it was like for your tour uh, for that year in Vietnam. floor is yours, sir.
0: Yeah, so um, we finished up at the Combat Training Center and, and about 1600 we got on aircraft and Flew into our LZs and where we were greeted there by uh, by folks who knew we were coming in, obviously, and were very anxious to see us. And I think the first astonishing thing is n- new people stuck out like a sore thumb in Vietnam because they were clean and they were their their uh, jungle fatigues were not tattered or torn or nasty or sweat stained and. <laughs> uh, and anyway, got picked up and got put into a platoon, and and uh, the very next day we were on aircraft again, and we we flew out to an area of operation, and just started walking. And uh, uh, I think that's probably the I think that's probably one of the big memories I have is just how much we just actually just walked, and and then of course um, every now and then a firefight. But more often than not, the area we were in was heavily mined and booby-trapped, and we rarely conducted a mission where we didn't lose a couple of folks through mines and booby-traps. And uh, um, I was very, very fortunate never to have been wounded. Uh, uh, There's been many times that I would question why, why him, not me, but... I guess the good Lord was just looking out after me is all I can all I can tally it up and I made it through that year um, physically unscathed but like many many people who served over there somewhat emotionally um, wounded and uh, and came on back to the states and uh, went back I was the intent was I was going to serve uh, my last six or seven months, eight months, and I was going to get out and I had enrolled at the University of Michigan, had every intention of using my GI Bill, going to college, and then going on with my life. Uh, but it didn't work out that way. Uh, my mother introduced me to a, to a young lady who caught my eye and one thing led to another and we ended up being engaged and then there was a question like, well, how are you going to provide? And uh, I... I really, I come up with all these great ideas that every time, I, I thought they were great anyway, but my wife-to-be didn't think they were so great, and my parents, particularly my dad, would say, you're absolutely crazy. Anyway, one evening, um, I was talking to my wife-to-be, and she said, why don't you stay in the Army? And I said, you got to be joking. I'm not going to stay in the Army. And she said, well, why don't you? You know when you're the happiest? When you're talking about your men. And at the time, I was a rifle squad leader in the 82nd, and, and she was right. I really, I mean, to me, the Army had become all about the people, and, and leading people was, was rather rewarding. I mean, I, I, I just took a liking to leading people and, and helping them through difficult situations and such. So one thing led to another, and we re-enlisted, and off we went. On our honeymoon, driving across the country from from Ann Arbor to uh, California, and from there on planes to Hawaii, and, and went to the 25th Entry Division and spent three years there, where both our children were born, and uh, and we learned how to be a army couple, which was not that easy of a
1: task. I bet. Uh, you, you know, you led. <laughs> You went there as a rookie to Vietnam, but you ended up being a, a squad leader, a platoon leader, or something like that. Tell yeah, us a I little bit about out. your first experience uh, your first experience at having to lead men.
0: Yeah, I, I left that out. Uh, so, so uh, just a little bit shy of nine months. In, in fact, the the date was the seventeenth of May of sixty nine. Um, through attrition, um, it was rather a. a a dark day for us, and and through attrition, I ended up being a a rifle squad leader. The the platoon sergeant saying, hey, these are your people now. Um, They're yours, take care of them. And all of a sudden, uh, an 18-year-old kid (laughs) has been invested with the lives of six other young people, and um, no training. No, no real preparation other than visual observation of other people that led, and and just the thought in your back of your mind. You know, if I ever have to do that, I'll I'll model that person, or I'll never be like that person. If I ever am in charge of people, I'll never treat people that way. So, I I uh, I got through it. I got through it, and uh, and left and left Vietnam as a as a sergeant, not a non commissioned officer yet, but as a sergeant, and. Uh, and as I said, went back and, and went to the 82nd as a, as a rifle squad leader.
1: So you picked up your leadership. Uh, it may have been innate, uh, just like your dad. Uh, uh, your leadership capabilities were innate. And when you took over the squad, were you nervous about it, or did you just jump in there and say, okay, i got to do this?
0: Um, you, I, don't, I don't recall having time to overthink it. It was just, Okay. Um, this is what I'm doing now. So, um, um, it it really it really became one of those things of next man up. I mean, it was like I mean, athletes go through this. The guy sitting on the bench waiting to play, and the the star goes down through an injury, and all of a sudden you get out there and lead the team. And so. So there wasn't really a lot of thought about it, and I will tell you that that most of us were so young, and and we were not political, and we were not strategic, and we were not about, you know, what was the cause and why's and everything else. We were all about, hey, if we take one uh, care of one another, if if we look out for each other, we just might make it through this and be able to go back home and get on with our lives. And so it became more of a, it became more of a, a brotherhood of folks who were committed to. Watching each other's backs and and at the same time performing whatever a mission was assigned to us to the degree that we could and and I think we did pretty well in that respect.
1: You know, you mentioned uh, first time I talked to your admiration for the chapter pilots. Tell us about that.
0: Yeah, I just I those guys exercise courage and and guts and and bravado that I have not seen since. Um, they they risked their lives to save the lives of others. They, they uh, gosh, I, I was just amazed. Of course, today, you could never fly like they fly there. The safety regulations and everything that's in place for all the right reasons precludes <laughs> pilots from flying um, the way that these young people. And keep in mind, a lot of these folks were young people, too, very young people that that were given the opportunity to go to flight school because of, of of passing the, the testing at such a degree and the Army needing helicopter pilots. Uh, so a lot of these guys were young men, you know, 19, 20, 21-year-old men flying these aircraft, and, and maybe that's why they were so brave and maybe that's why they were so good at what they do. But hats off to those folks, I all the admiration in the world.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I've known a lot of chopper pilots, and uh, they're in the category pretty well half-crazy. Great guys, great guys. Uh, And and we are, of course, in the Air Force, we had the rescue choppers and everything else, too. Very, very brave men. And the jumpers, the jumpers that went down to get injured pilots are are shot down. Absolutely. Bravery, bravery never uh, talked about. But now you were in I Corps. There was a lot of action up in I Corps. Uh, How'd you, how'd your men do? How did you do? Um... Did you get your boys home okay?
0: Well, no, I lost people, and um, of course, replacements were were flowed pretty regularly. So, if you lost somebody, normally within twenty four hours, you would have a replacement, depending on the weather and depending on what the situation back in the LZ was. But I, uh, I think uh, in the short time I led them, which was a little bit, let's just call it three months. Um, I lost four of the people. Three of them to booby traps, mm. and and one to a sniper. Um, and and that that as, as a leader, even a young leader, even a person who finds himself in a leadership role in the manner that I did, you you can't help but feel some response. Even though you weren't responsible, you you, you feel some responsibility because you lost a man and. And, you know, Vietnam was special in that I, I couldn't remember the name of more than two or three people, their actual names, because we all lived by nicknames. Everybody called me R.A. because I I uh, I was regular Army. I had enlisted in the Army, and a vast majority of the folks that I served with there were draftees. They were U.S. And so my name was R.A., and uh, other people had names, like one guy we called Reb. He was from Mississippi, and... and I don't know. It, so, so we developed this camaraderie, this brotherhood that was that was uh, based upon survival, based upon um, how do we take care of one another, and we got to know one another through just sitting around talking when the time was right, just sitting around talking about what are you going to do when you get back home, and what'd you do before you got over here, that type of thing. So. It was an experience that I don't wish on anyone, but I'm sure that it molded me in many ways and and served me well later on after I decided to go ahead and stay in the Army.
1: All right. Did you, um, did you stay at LZ Bayonet most of the time?
0: No. No, I think anybody that served in the infantry in Vietnam would tell you that uh, more often than not, Um, you spent a lot more time in the bush than you did on the LZ. You'd come back after an operation, whether it was a 7-day, 10-day, 20-day operation, you'd come back in in time to get a shower and a nice meal and maybe new jungle fatigues and and, and equipment that was worn out. And normally within another 48, 72 hours, you were back on birds, headed back out on another operation.
1: Great. Remarkable, remarkable. I know I Corps was, was heavy uh, in action up there near the DMZ. Uh, yep. Laos, uh, you, you were in the artillery range from the, the uh, communist guns in, in the mountains over there in Laos. Um, uh, talked to a lot of Marines up there. Uh, did you ever see a arc light strike, B-52s?
0: Um, I mean, we had to pull back. Uh from them, they normally tried to clear three grid squares before they'd have them. that. Always didn't work out that way. So, so uh, hearing it and feeling it was was probably more accurate than seeing it. But I will tell you, those those B fifty two strikes were just if if you weren't aware of what was going on around you, it made you very aware that wow, there's some heavy stuff going on around us.
1: Yeah, I think uh, three of our B-52s flying in formation, a V formation from 30,000 feet, uh, their ordnance covered an area of about, I think it was 475 football fields or something like that. It was incredible, Uh, just a a minor earthquake. All right, we are going to our second break. We'll be right back with with, uh, Command Sergeant Major Bob Dare and getting to his career after Vietnam. Stay with us, folks.
0: org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank
1: you for listening. All right, folks, we're back with Command Sergeant Major Bob Dare. He is, uh, uh thankfully got home from Vietnam, uh, intact, uh, married his beautiful wife and rejoined the army uh let's go from hawaii to to the rest of your career uh bob uh i know that you and your wife probably loved hawaii right
0: well i spent more time um in the field uh in hawaii than than my wife did obviously but yeah i think for the most part um Hawaii was a, a unique assignment, particularly at that time. Uh, neither of us had ever been there, so uh, when we did get opportunities to enjoy the beach and the and the weather and the beauty of the island, we certainly did. And as I mentioned earlier, both our children were born there. And uh, I'd also point out that that uh, we went there in uh, 1971. In 1972, we we had a, every unit had a formation one morning to announce that the army was now going to become a volunteer army, that the conscription was ending, and that uh, uh, all of us had become, on paper, our new occupation was professional soldier. And the army, uh, at that time, started instituting a number of things uh, to transform it from um, a conscripted force to a all-volunteer force. And so I tell people, I went to Hawaii as a sergeant, and I left there as a non-commissioned officer, because it's the they established a non-commissioned officer academy, so it's the first place I had any formal leadership training, oh. um, and I would say that the leaders that were in the 25th Division at the time, uh, so many of them I admired. I mean, the examples they set, the way they carried themselves, the... The, the trainers that they were, I learned much much more about the craft of being an infantryman in Hawaii than I had ever learned prior to that. Wow! And so and so, when I made the commitment to stay in the army, I I just I became one of those few people that stayed on post Vietnam and helped the army transform. Um. So, so what happened after Hawaii is is I got drafted to be a drill sergeant, like many non-commissioned officers did back in those days. You got, you got a little letter saying, congratulations, your records indicate that you would serve the Army well in the capacity of a drill sergeant. So we packed up in 74 and moved from Hawaii to Fort Ord, California, and uh, went through drill sergeant school and was a basic training drill sergeant there for a year or so, and then they made the decision that they were going to close Fort Ord and they were going to reopen basic training at Fort Gordon, Georgia. So we packed everything up and moved across the country to Fort Gordon, Georgia, where I, I finished mm-hmm. out the next two, two and a half years as a drill sergeant there.
1: Did you and like being drill
0: I, you like was, uh, a drill
1: sergeant?
0: Did oh, you like being a drill sergeant? For an infantryman, I tell people that being a drill sergeant is one of the very few jobs you can have where at the end of a prescribed period of time, you actually see what you did. Marching those kids off the parade field at the end of basic training and and being able to look at them and saying you're a soldier now, um, they're just, it's just the greatest feeling. I I just can't describe the feeling. Now, long hours, it was frustrating. Uh, You had to be careful. You could find yourself getting into trouble very quickly. But for the vast majority of drill sergeants took a lot of pride in what they did, and they took a lot of pride in in moving those soldiers from basic training to their to their next um, to their next uh, phase of army growth. So, yeah, I I enjoyed it.
1: Okay, all right, all right. Now, after that, uh, please continue.
0: Well, I I uh, went to the uh, 24th Infantry Division at Fort Stewart. It's now the 3rd Infantry Division. I spent some time there, and I ended up um, having to leave my family, go to Korea for a tour, came back, and uh, I will tell you that that, uh, by that time, I was a Sergeant First Class, and when I came back from Korea to Fort Stewart, I was there about six months, and And I hit the promotion list to to master sergeant, and the only thing I ever wanted to be when I made a decision to stay in the Army, and it's because of the impact that that a first sergeant had on me in Hawaii, the only thing I wanted to be was an Infantry company first sergeant. And when I got that opportunity, I just loved it, and and uh, I, I could have stayed a company first sergeant for 50 years, the Army could have left <laughs> me alone, I was, there's no other job in the Army that's as rewarding and it's direct leadership in every sense of the word. And I got a I got a phone call one day from a battalion commander who I had served with there in the 24th, and he had he was then working in the uh, Army IG's office, Inspector General's office, and he called me and he said, "Hey, would you be interested in taking a job as a first sergeant in the Old Guard?" And heck, I didn't know much about the Old Guard. It's the Army ceremonial unit. All services have a ceremonial unit in Washington D.C. and 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 I said, "Well." I'm I'm sure I would. And uh he said, Okay, well, I, I can't guarantee this but somebody will be in touch with you. And the next phone call I got was from a sergeant major of the old guard and uh, and he uh he said, uh, can you come up here for an interview? One thing led to another. I got the assignment and I went to the old guard and and I will just tell you it's a different different world of infantry with the old guard, but I, I can't sing I, I told my third company commander, who was a very nervous person, and and he didn't. He was relatively young in his command, and he was pinging off the walls. And um, we had vans and buses and and vehicles lined up in front of the company. And we'd send a squad off here to do a funeral, and we'd send a squad off there to do a funeral, and we'd send a platoon off to do this and a ceremony somewhere, and. And he was trying to go everywhere, and you couldn't go everywhere. And I said to him, I looked at me. I said, Captain, let me tell you how this works. We come in every morning, we take our rank off, and we pin it on those squad leaders right there, and we put them on a vehicle, and we send them off to do a job. And if they do a really good job, they're going to come home tonight, and you get your rank back. But if they screw it up, we lose. And that's, and I'm telling you, that because you can't be everywhere and these kids have I've been here for two and a half years and these kids have never failed me they always bring my rank home every night and and I just that was a great tour of duty for both the family and just for me professionally it was a wonderful rewarding tour
1: yeah I've been to Arlington several times those guys are remarkable up there especially the the uh two of the unknown guards uh I've interviewed some over those guys that that has to be uh, i don't know that that has to be some kind of a special duty uh uh, i know that boy everybody's not qualified to do it uh what kind of a training when you got there and you weren't familiar with the third guard what kind of training did you go through to to be in charge of those young men
0: so they the the old guard had a series of qualifications that you had to uh, demonstrate um, and pass before you were ceremonial qualified. So you couldn't participate in a ceremony. A commissioned officer couldn't participate in a ceremony until he was certified that he could march with the noncommissioned officer's sword and he could march in the manner that the old guard marched, and his uniform was prepared in in the standard. Uh, it was so. It, again, it was a different kind of entry. In a regular entry unit, you got to qualify with your weapon. You have to qualify with your PT test, and you had to do all those things in the old guard. Plus, you had to qualify for all these ceremonies. Your knowledge of ceremonies and that. So, it it wasn't easy. But you got a lot of help getting where you were and and young soldiers were were my best teachers. I, young soldiers that had been there for a while, um, uh, privates and specialists that knew the ceremonies and everything else, they would bend over backwards, come here first sergeant, let me show you what you're doing wrong I, I just I can't say enough good about those those young soldiers who um, my gosh, and it was because of where we live, many of them who were married. They had to live 50, 60, 70 miles away, so they were up every morning at 2 o'clock driving into Washington, D.C. Yeah. in order to be there on time, and they wouldn't leave at night until 8, 9 o'clock until they were all done. So, yeah, it was a it was a different world, but it was it was quite a reward and an honor to have had the opportunity to serve there.
1: I'll bet you. You know, I've heard over and over again that the old guard, boy, Especially the team guards—that's uh, the cream of the crop. Would you
0: would you agree with that, Bob? Uh, I, I to, to some degree, I would say there are special soldiers that are there because not everyone can serve there. There's a height requirement. There's some other requirements that thing, and but I I will just do an advertisement for. I think every service, including the army. There's elitism everywhere you look, and it really, because of the mission of the Old Guard, it's it's it stands out a little bit more because of the sensitivity of the missions. When you're when you're burying somebody's loved one, uh, in the manner that is done with the with the with the uh, uh, prompt and the pomp and circumstance, which which every soldier should have, as a final tribute to them you can't make a mistake so i mean you really have to be on your game every day um and so yeah. in that regard yeah they're they're a special type of soldier that serves there but i would offer that you can look in any service and you can look in any uh, in any unit and you can see elitism and a lot of that has to do with the leadership of that organization
1: well put. I like that. I like that. Now, you were involved with the transition to an all-volunteer Army, so I think everybody would like to know, as a career soldier, uh, your opinion of, of all-volunteer Army versus uh, having a draft.
0: Well, I don't think anybody can argue the benefit of having people who have made the decision on their own to serve in uniform and commit themselves to service in uniform. And I think the the last uh, the last 25 30 years has, has the the country's learned the the professionalism and the the competencies that exist in the in the professional uh, military. I would say on a, on a negative tone, the thing that I have noticed and the thing that concerns me, and I think it's one of these unintended consequences of decision-making that probably wasn't discussed enough, but, you know, I understand that less than 2% of our population feeds this entire country and much of the world less than 1% of our population serves it. So the gap that exists between those that understand the rigors of serving in uniform, the sacrifice that young men and women make when they when they take on the task of serving in uniform, that gap between those of, with knowledge and those without knowledge is pretty doggone big right now. And yeah. so I think it's really easy for people to make, Quick decisions about will reduce the budget. Will will do, um, and whether or not that bodes well for sustainment of a professional force. Somebody smarter than me and, and probably probably time will prove it out. But that's my one concern: is the gaps between between those that have served and those that haven't served. Because I I think if if you have a vested interest in in the rigors of of warfare, and that's why we have a military to defend this country against all enemies, foreign and domestic. So, at the end of the day, our military goes to war when it has to go to war when it's right and proper. And if you have people that that are disconnected from it, just have so much distance between them and and knowing anybody who has served or whether they have served themselves, it it, it has a negative impact in the long run, in my opinion.
1: I, I think that's a beautiful statement. Uh, well said, sir. Very well said. Uh, we are going to our very last break. Uh, Command Sergeant Major, when we get back, I would like to ask you how in the world you ended up uh, visiting 28 countries and uh, which ones that uh, you enjoyed and your wife enjoyed. And then I know you're very involved in a veterans program. We'll get to that, too. Folks, please stay with us. We'll be right back. Command Sergeant Major.
0: In 2009, yeah. the membership organization, Moxley, uh,
1: uh, I on the station, care was uh, I did my basic and AIT for the country in wanted to participate in the when efforts of this there? group
2: and they wanted oh, to join, but so they were unable to do so unless oh, okay. they were physicians.
1: Well, I'm sure my uh, it's for this reason Dr. that Docs for gone Patient by Care by
2: Foundation was created. Yeah. He, he now, was. everyone I, I can join the fight and, and become a, a member of an training organization, training was organization was created was by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship.
0: While you're at your computer,
2: please go to www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. And, and that's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible no donation a and join the fight along with us. Thank Ford
0: you. Ford Ord is no longer Ford Ord. Yeah, they they, Hi, they took I'm it Steve on. Hi, I'm Stephen host of the Classic Car Show and Web Radio. Know, of about learning. anti-car insurance. I thought I was very lucky to serve there. i part of it for years. Not all insurance companies and Interestingly enough, when I went back
1: after basic and was standing in... The mess Taylor line for jctaylor. AIT. Com Come to find out, my platoon sergeant information and I had graduated from high school cars and cars together and were can friends. Can and oh my God, he had gone God. To I tell you, uh,
0: can bring out, can show you just how small car. the world is. Oh absolutely. Again, he had gone, he had gone to Benning uh, and done a shake and
1: bake and was a little or And he was walking through the line and looked at me and saw my name tag. He looked at, I mean, he did a about face as quickly as and one girls of all ages, one. join and me, Roger every Tuesday at
0: 1,400 hours
1: right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded show.
0: We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1,400 or 2 p.m.
1: And Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. Oh, heavens.
2: If you so, live to serve yeah, and I want enjoyed, to make an even bigger uh, difference, consider yeah, joining the U.S. Uh, Army. With training I, in fields I like medical and, care, I linguistics, and engineering, really an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities I, uh, all over the world. I, uh, I was Plus, an you'll receive then competitive then pay and incredible that. benefits, and, so uh, you'll uh, mm-hmm. be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com.
1: I missed the boat. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the Americas Broadcast
0: Network.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Okay, folks, we are back with Command Sergeant Major Bob Dare. What a career. What a career. Uh, I, Bob, 28 countries. Uh, I, you can't cover all of them because I want to talk a little bit about your veterans program in conclusion. But 28 countries. Uh, which ones did you enjoy and maybe your wife enjoyed? Well,
0: we, as a family, we uh, we went to Europe when the wall was still up and to Germany. Mm. And we were there when the wall came down, so we got to see that celebration of peace, if you will. And and my wife would, she'd probably live in Germany if it if her grandkids were not here. Um, we we really enjoyed the the Germany tour. We really enjoyed the uh, walking down to the to the little villages and. Getting a nice cup of coffee and a nice broaching on a Saturday cool Saturday morning, <laughs> we enjoyed that a lot. Now, many of those countries uh, that I visited or, or spent time in were a result. Uh, uh, my position is uh, command sergeant major of the United States Army Pacific, and we had a we had a training uh, relationship agreement with a number of Asian countries, and I spent. Uh, uh, a good amount of time in india singapore sri lanka korea um i even uh in in that capacity as uh united states army pacific sergeant major we had operational responsibility for joint task force full accounting so i even had the the opportunity to visit those kids in vietnam laos and cambodia wow at as they worked to try to recover um the remains of of missing service people. So, yeah, I mean, I would not trade my career for anything. I do not regret a day of it. Uh, It served me well. I think I served the Army well. And the relationships and and folks that still reach out to me and say, you were my first sergeant and uh, you you probably don't remember what you did for me one time when I had this... I mean, there's nothing that can replace those type of memories and those ty- types of events that that just make serving and leading people so special. Wow!
1: Well, wow. What's some of the European countries you visited?
0: Oh, France, uh, uh, Germany. When the wall came down, we there was a there, the, part of the treaty that was drawn up between the Russians and the U.S. was a a certification if you will of forces that remained in country and so uh i, I was uh, a brigade sergeant major at bombholder germany and we were selected for the russians to visit us and in and, and so their their leadership from uh, one of their bases in poland came and um and and if you will counted vehicles and and that type of stuff, whatever the treaty allowed. And then we, in turn, went to Poland and did the same thing with their unit there. So, yeah, I mean, the typical countries that we visited on little trips, Switzerland and skiing the Alps in the winter and things like
1: mm. that. Yeah. Oh, it was
0: a great opportunity.
1: How nice. Did you go to East Germany?
0: We did. We did. Uh, before the wall went down, we had good friends up in the Berlin Brigade. Um, and we were sponsored by a by a good friend. In fact, it was a non commissioned officer that had served with me in the old guard, who had since went to uh, went to the Berlin Brigade, and he sponsored uh, me and my family. And we got on the Freedom Train and rolled through the night, um, and into uh, uh, into Berlin, and. Uh, we got to do the whole tour into the East Berlin side and do the shopping thing and had a nice meal over there. One of the few uh, really nice hotels that they had. And yeah, and I would just tell you that when you cross that border from West uh, Berlin into East Berlin, you immediately knew there was some, my kids noticed this. It was just all draft. There was no color. There was no color at all. It was just gray buildings. Everything was gray. And uh, it was explained to us that that was done purposely because that type of environment if you will help keep people feeling suppressed and so sure. it, it gave us an appreciation of freedom for sure
1: I have heard that uh, of course uh, East East Berlin was not as well developed under the communist as West Berlin <clears throat> you had freedom versus uh, a dictatorship uh, I wish the kids had that experience now to go see the difference. But uh, that's an interesting comment that you made that your children even noticed the difference. Uh, What did they think when they saw that big difference? What did they say to you about it? Well,
0: they were both, um, my son was a freshman in high school and my daughter was a, was uh, in the 8th grade so they were both of the age where they were aware of what's going around and we we sometimes don't give kids enough credit for what they do see and what what they in terms of self-awareness and situational awareness because they're a lot sharper than sometimes we give them credit but they immediately noticed the difference like dad there's absolutely no color here there's nothing every building is just gray brick concrete type building and uh, the person that was with us, who knew a little about the history and, and and such, was explaining how it went, and they were very receptive to that, and they were very they were very uh, openly thankful that. Wow, glad we didn't have to live here.
1: Wow, Pete, we'll go for wow. eight more well, minutes. That is interesting. I can tell that uh, from your voice uh, when describing Germany. Uh, you really enjoyed it, and you said your wife really enjoyed it. You may not want her to listen to this program because she may force you to move back to Germany.
0: <laughs> I, I don't have to worry about that as long as our grand our grandchildren are here. They're they're in here.
1: <laughs> I know it. Okay, now you are very involved in some veterans programs, uh, Bob. Tell us about those.
0: Yeah, so the program I'd like to tell you about is called Together with Vets. It's a VA sponsored program. It's a grassroots program whereby we bring training resources and funding to a community to a qualified community and uh and and they take on the the awesome effort of reducing rural veteran suicide we've got uh we've got 26 states around the country um and we have including one in Guam and one in Alaska um wow. these are these are uh these are uh, sites that that uh, our veteran-led, veteran, uh, we, we, uh, there's an organization included in this called a steering committee, call it the, 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 the board of directors, if you will, and they have to be a majority of veterans. And uh, And again, we bring them the training, we bring them the resources, and we provide funding to each community so that they can run their program. So this is not the veterans uh, the VA coming in and saying, you've got a problem, here's how you're gonna solve it. It is a group um, of trainers, if you will, we come into the community based upon, based upon the community's invitation, their approval of us doing so. And we, I like to say, we give you a roughed in structure and you get to finish it and decorate it in accordance with how your community wants it to look. It's getting great reviews. It's getting uh, it's getting a lot of attention at the top of the the VA because of the success we're having, and it's all about saving the lives of veterans. Suicide is the tenth leading cause of death in this country, and veteran suicide is higher than uh, than the rest of the nation's um, suicide rates, uh, to include uh, women veterans as well. So, it's a noble cause. It's a great. Um, effort to take on. It requires commitment and it requires work, but my gosh, if we can save one life, it's all worth it. And uh, if anybody wants to get a hold of me, uh, here's my cell phone number, 404 422 7254 or you can email me at dareconsult at gmail.com
1: Super. Super. I'm, I'm glad you're having success with this. And in, in you're in your travels, in your study, and in your training, is there some way to pinpoint the cause of all these veteran suicides?
0: I, I think if somebody could identify the real cause of it, that uh, we probably could um, reduce it even quicker. But obviously there's some there's some things that, that quite often pop up, uh, joblessness, homelessness. Substance abuse, um, unstable uh, relationships, isolationism, um, and and of course what experience they had while in uniform. PTSD may contribute to it. Um, there's a lot of things to continue and this program is all about identifying the signs early on in people before they're in crisis situation identifying the signs early on and and having that tough discussion with them and then getting them to professional help that's what this program targets um, so it's not a service program it's a it's a public health program if you will where a community engages in in reaching out to the veterans and getting them getting them not to be ashamed or afraid of stepping up and saying, I got a problem, I need to talk with somebody. And we know if yeah. we can get get to that phase, we know we can save lives from that point forward.
1: Remarkable. Do, do you think that, I believe some of the problem may be that you take a young person uh, at a very impressive age and train them in the military way. And when they come back to civilian life, it's so, so different than what they're used to. I think frustration may have a big part of it. What do you think about that?
0: Well, I'll tell you, Pete, that's another one of the things that do come up. And I do know the young veterans that we end up talking with and engaging in this. They talk about the one thing that they miss having left the military. Um, And we're, we're talking about kids that just do a tour or so and decide that the military life's not for them and get out. They miss the camaraderie. They miss the closeness. They miss leadership that cares, uh, that really cares about their well-being. And so for sure, uh, for sure, that can definitely be a contributing factor.
1: Yeah, you mentioned uh, you worked for Corporate America for just a little while, and you had uh, you weren't too thrilled about it. you want to discuss that just a little bit?
0: Well, when I made a decision to get out of the Army, it was after I got a job offer. And I was at the point where, what else am I going to do for the Army? And I'm going to have to get out eventually. And, and I figured, like, well, now now it's my turn to make a lot of money. So I, I took a job in, in a training and simulation company. And, and to be perfectly honest, I was chasing money. And uh, and it took me a while to learn, at least for me, maybe not all people fall in this category, but chasing money does not bring happiness, and it does not, does not at all... Uh, uh, soothe the soul, so to speak. And there was an emptiness and a void. And I, I got so disappointed and so dissatisfied with it. And I saw how, how business works. I mean, at the end of the day, it's the bottom line, it's the profit and loss statement. It's not the people. And, and that was intolerable to me. And so I, I left it and I went into business for myself and I, I established this little leadership company and, uh, and so I, I, I went around uh, small businesses primarily, small businesses and organizations, and taught basic leadership stuff that I had learned in the Army. I just translated that into civilian jargon and, and kind of took it to, to uh, the small business America. And then I got into executive coaching and mentoring, and, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm still in that today. I still do that as well as this, this veterans thing, and it's far more rewarding than chasing money.
1: I agree. I agree. Um, I think one big problem we have is the discipline you have in the military, and then you come out, and instead of a team, sometimes in corporate America, although they have teams, it, it's still more like stabbing people in the back, and uh, that's not teamwork. That's not teamwork to me. Um, Command Sergeant Major Bob, Dare, We are out of time. A remarkable career. I want to thank you for your service uh, to the United States of America and to all its citizens, and thank you for what you're doing now, Bob. You are not going to uh, rust out, sir. You are going to wear out, and that's the best way for us to go.
0: Thanks, Pete. I appreciate it. And anybody that has interest in Together with Vets, I gave you my contact information. I'd love to hear from you.
1: Yes, sir. Very good. I'll spread the word for you, Bob.
0: Thanks, Pete. Thanks a lot.
1: Okay. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Join us next week, folks. Great program lined up with a nurse in Vietnam. Thanks. Have a good day. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.